you, you wouldn't say it's boring because you're trying to think about where your cattle are. You're trying to read the country that's in front of you and, and utilize that. So pads, um, cattle pads and creeks and water points and hills and that sort of stuff. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 106 of the Rotary Wing Show. Thanks for joining us again. I hope you can kick back as we jump in and learn more about the people and the types of operations that make up the helicopter industry. Cattle are big business in Australia. Rough Round Numbers has us at 25 million head of cattle and the industry employs somewhere around 200,000 people. Australia is the third largest beef exporter in the world. The cattle industry also contributes a sizable chunk of the annual helicopter hours flown in Australia. One set of figures I had from way back in 2004 was that 62% of all Robinson R22 flight hours in Australia were conducted in aerial mustering. I'd have to assume that holds pretty true, if not higher, today. I know helicopters are used for mustering a little bit in the US and Texas, a little bit in New Zealand, and I have to assume in Brazil. But when I look online, and this you know, partly could be a, a factor of Google filtering just because I'm here in Australia, but helicopter mustering is well and truly overrepresented in search results as a chiefly Australian type of flying. Mustering hasn't always had the, the best reputation, is sometimes being characterised as being a little bit loose. A lot of it happens hundreds of kilometres away from any regulatory oversight, and you could argue that because they are rarely carrying any passengers, that CASA and other regulators aren't particularly interested. The flip side of that is that CASA has, on occasion, come out with regulation changes without much consultation with the mustering part of the aviation community. Mustering has also had its share of casualties and incidents. These can happen a long way from any emergency services. I've seen a documentary on one particular accident where the, the rescue AW139 had to stop and refuel en route just to, to get on scene. CAS's 2015 sector risk profile of the industry summarised the, the danger. Mustering by definition involves low-level flying and is a hazard-rich activity with the inherent danger of being only a few seconds away from impact in the case of an emergency or pilot distraction. Having said all that, I have no personal experience with mustering at all. Everything has been secondhand. A big thanks to David Logan, who is a listener and Patreon supporter that has just started out on his helicopter license and is tackling the theory exams. Dave put me in contact with today's guest, and it's well overdue for us to jump in and learn more about mustering. Sam Chisholm grew up on cattle properties and got into helicopter flying early. He spent the last 16 years flying and mustering 
in rural Australia, getting to see a good cross-section of not only the industry, but also the country. Sam paints a picture of a sector that has been maturing for a while now, and that is using the helicopter as an incredibly important tool for station owners and beef production. I grew up uh, on Napanee Station, which is 200 kilometres northwest of Alice Springs in the Northern Territory. Um, we always had helicopters coming and going to muster the cattle. Alice Springs doesn't use as many helicopters as Northern Australia, but there's such vast areas that to get the cattle out of the paddocks, um, it used to be done on horseback and it's pretty inefficient this day and age, a, a job that one can do in a helicopter or one person can do in a helicopter used to take 14 people a couple of weeks uh, on horseback. So we always had the helicopters coming out and so from a young age, I guess, I was exposed to them and they uh, used to go and pitch dad for you and give it to the pilots as they'd take me for a ride. So been around them a little while. And how big was your property growing up then in terms of just give people a bit of an idea of scale. We'll talk about some big properties later on. But yeah, how, how big was your property? Uh, it was a million and a half acres. So it's about 90 kilometres by 60 kilometres. That was roughly the size of that. So to drive around it to do a bore run um, and check all the waters on the way is 500 k's round trip. And you can do that. <laughs> you can do that. Dad had a Cessna 182 and he could do the water run in a couple of hours, but of course he couldn't stop anywhere. So he ended up buying a 44 as well later after I started flying. I think that's the only thing I've ever done before him and start flying the helicopter, but he could do that in three hours, check the water. There was a pump needed starting ground, start the pump, start the bore, and all that sort of stuff. And what's the what's the terrain and the vegetation like out there? Like, uh, what elevation are you at? What's the you know the biggest hill? Uh, what, what's the what's the land like? It varies a lot on obviously the scale um, of the place, but we could see from the southern end of the property, you could see Mount Zeal, which is the highest point in the Northern Territory, and I think it's three thousand seven hundred feet. I'm guessing, but but then general ground level around Alice is about 2,000 feet uh, above sea level, and it it varies as um, sort of rocky rocky hills and desert outcrops that then run into mulga forest. So that's sort of I don't, mulga is green, and it all looks the same when it's in a when it's in a forest. There's no reference point. It's quite hard to find cattle in the mulga. Um, they all sort of blend in and everything looks the same and you're flying backwards and forwards and you can get lost pretty easily, lost in terms of where you're up to uh, with with a paddock. And then it opens up into spin effects and there was a big salt lake on the bottom of the place, which is the salt lake is 200 square, square k's, I think. So huge, big, huge, big salt lake and has little islands and things and the cattle live out on them as well. So yeah, it varies a lot. And then across... Uh, between like all our neighbours, it was it was always varied. Lots of different varied land types around Central Australia. 
And the density of trees there, like, could you find, were there places where you couldn't get a helicopter down or the trees fairly spread out uh, and the size of the trees? Like, I guess what I'm trying to do is give people who, you know, listening from overseas who don't know outback Australia that much, you know, we're not, not talking redwood trees, where they're, you know, 200 feet high or anything. What's, sort of, what's the, the trees out there? Uh, around Alice, so yeah, 50 foot high, the mulga, the mulga forest would be probably lower than that, but quite dense together. So, for example, you could be coming up to where you think in this little patch of forest and you think there might be 10 head and, um, and 100 cattle run out of it. You just don't know how they all fit in there, but you, there's no way you could see them. It's really dense and dark from the top. But then when you get into the open country, uh, there'll be bloodwood trees and whitewood trees, and, and they're they're much more spread out. So, yeah, lots of lots of room to land um, a helicopter, and, and it's pretty pretty friendly terrain to fly in as well. We'll get back to the skills that you need as a mustering pilot. But you grew up then, I guess, on motorbikes, horseback, herding cattle, well before you ever ever got to a helicopter. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's pretty. It's natural for station kids to grow up being a part of you're part of a family business, I guess. So you're always out helping every opportunity you could. And we did school of the air, my sister and I. So that is uh, for those that don't know, it's correspondence uh, before the days of, I guess, the internet being what it is. We used to do it on an HF radio. So the school was in Alice Springs and. Uh, we'd call up for our radio lessons at 11.30 or whatever the time was and they'd, they'd send by the mail, they'd send the uh, work packs out so we'd have two weeks of work and we had a governess to help us through that but you could you could uh, do your two weeks of work in in a week and a half and then you get a few days extra to go mustering or to help out to go and do some fun stuff. And were you a good student? I don't think so. <laughs> I didn't have to wear shoes to school, so that was a, that was a bonus. No, I'm just Maybe. interested because getting your commercial license now, probably the, honestly, the hardest part for most people would be the the theory side of things. Once you get into the practical, it's it's not too bad. But uh, again, I'm not not sure going back uh, when you went through, but there's definitely people failing multiple times just to try and get through the theory part at the moment. So I'm just interested to see, yeah, how, how you found that going from that sort of schooling and depending on what level the, the theory was set at. So, yeah, okay, so we jump from from that. Where where did you do your training? Then? Well, yeah, so I did my training on the Gold Coast or Coolangatta, Coolangatta Airport with um, PHS. Yep. And I think I was pretty fortunate. There was another guy and I who were both uh, straight out of school doing our licence together and I think, because we were straight out of school, we were in study mode and uh, we just bought the books and hooked into it ourselves and sort of bounced off each other and did the practice exams and we went through it quite well. Um, but like we didn't fail, I don't think I failed any exams, but I was in study mode. It wasn't so much the content, it was I, I, was, I remembered how to study, but there was another guy who was a bit older than me and um, it took him a bit longer and he was smarter than I was, but he didn't, he'd forgotten how to study, I guess. But I had guys that I flew with who only went to year nine at school. They didn't even pass their 
HSC or anything, and and they they battled a bit, but they got through. I think persistence will will overcome a lot of obstacles. Especially when you know you're going back out for a lot of you guys, you're going back out to an almost guaranteed job. So there'd be a bit of pressure being away from home and to come back with the license in the end. Yeah, but it's if you're learning something that you're interested in and is relevant, it um it makes it a lot better. I, I got a bit. I think I only scraped through on a couple. I, I, so the first exam I did was meteorology, and I didn't really know how hard it would be. And so I studied, tried hard, and got ninety eight percent. And then I took the next one pretty cheaply and passed on the number and. Yeah, well, I found a bit boring and I only just got that. But, um, yeah, when you're studying something that you think is um, appropriate to you and you're passionate about it, it makes it a lot easier. And Sam, did you go straight for the commercial license? Yeah, yeah I did. Yeah, straight for commercial. I don't know if it's a good spot here. We'll just take a bit of a segue to talk about that for us in Australia because you can actually do mustering on a, on a private license. Can you do you want to talk to like the restrictions on on how that happens? Because it, it's kind of like a bit of a not a loophole as, as such, but it, it's one of the few places where you can actually get paid as a helicopter pilot on a on a private license. Yeah, it's. I think it's pretty loose, but basically, if you've got a private license and you work for a company who owns a helicopter, you're not getting paid as you're not getting paid to fly that helicopter, you're getting paid to be the helicopter pilot, but you're not you're not charging out the helicopter to anyone else. So I guess that's the loophole is you can you can fly on their property and work for them as a pilot, but you're not charged out as a pilot to other people. So if they went to their next door neighbour with you as a pilot and charged the next door neighbour to muster the cattle, then all of a sudden you're breaking the rules because you're a commercial pilot. So um you're still going to do a mustering endorsement no matter what you do. Um, but if you're doing a commercial license, I think you, you end up with better training. You generally end up working for a company who puts a bit more time into you and it's, I think, safer overall. What's the process to train someone up? So you, you get your fresh private or your fresh commercial license, you hit the station, and, and I guess there's a, a massive variation of, of how people do this. But how did you go about it? Like, did you fly with someone on dual initially? Uh, what was the process before you felt pretty comfortable and knew what you were doing? Uh, I don't know if I still feel comfortable and know what I'm doing. But <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I started, when when I started, I worked for uh, Lindsay Ward up in Kananara and the, I got into, into town in the afternoon and I think he was looking for someone a bit older than me. Uh, 18 baby face but there I was so we went out to he had the lease on El Cuesto station and I went out there and the next morning I was on the jewels and mustering and we did a fair bit of jewel um, and then for the must of it and then um, you've got to have 100 hours in command we used to I'm not sure what it is now but you used to have, a, have to have 100 hours in command um, before you could do your mustering endorsement and 10 hours of jewel. So I got the 10 hours of jewel, but I still had to do quite a lot of um, checking the waters and burying helicopters and that sort of stuff, uh, flood fencing, going which is in the wet season up north. When the creeks run, they take out the fences, and apart from the only way to, to fix them because it's too wet to drive around is to 
you've either got two choices. One is to let the cattle go everywhere that you've mustered up during the year or you send the junior pilot around to pull the floodgates up and you've got to swim across the creeks and dig out all the wire out of the bushes. So it's a pretty good, um, I think it teaches you. You're generally working in hot environment. You've quite often got a, a passenger on as well. So it teaches you a few skills that you can take through your career working in hot, hot and heavy, I suppose. Had you lined that work up before you got to Kananara or did you turn up and then start looking for work? No, I had a, I lined it up. I was doing my license, but it was, it was a, we'll give you a go. I had another spot in Queensland and I saw them on the way and then got to Kananara and just settled in there. But yeah, I think it's in, a lot of people are willing to give you a go, but they, they're never going to commit. Uh, without having seen what sort of attitude you're going to bring to the table. Okay, so we've got checking fences, checking the water bores, uh, and some things just to get you out to, to build up experience, and then into the mustering. Um, I guess we'll, we'll talk about some of the other jobs you've done a long way there, but while we hit the mustering, the, the stuff that makes it to YouTube, I guess, is some pretty dynamic type of flying. You know, the helicopters below tree levels, quite uh you know it, it looks aggressive for for an r22 what sort of percentage of the time you're doing that versus to just following the cat along at, at 100 feet just to, to keep the moving in the right direction what's the what's the mix of of flying yeah most of most of mastering is flying backwards and forwards and it's you, you wouldn't say it's boring because you're trying to think about where your cattle are, you're trying to read the country that's in front of you and, and utilize that. So pads, um, cattle pads and creeks and water points and hills and that sort of stuff. You're doing, you're doing a lot of thinking, but the actual flying, uh, 50 knots backwards and forwards basically. And um, you're quite often mustering with someone else. So you might have a creek or a road and you, you meet there. So you poke over 50 knots and sort of, yep, where are you coming to? Oh, I'm coming to the road. Okay. Well, my cattle. Are on the road going down there, yeah, I can see them and you turn around and you see not back the other way. So And what height are you doing? When uh depends on the country. Um if you've got thicker thicker country you've got to be lower and lower and slower. But if you're out in the open or sort of some of these flowing hills and the cattle are all going along, you might be at a thousand feet, two thousand feet. It it just depends. It's sort of a forty five degree angle, I suppose. If you're out on the bar for your um, those places are just open downs, I guess. Um, you can you can muster those at three thousand feet. You, you can just everything's going good. You can see what's happening. No stress, nice and cool up the top there. Um, so that's, you can make that's three thousand AGL or yeah, yeah. Oh really? Wow. Yeah. Okay, it, it, I, I thought you'd be yeah. like five hundred AGL. No, the majority is, but you can definitely do it, and it's it's. The cattle work off the noise, so they don't work off you and, and you as a stockman, uh, moving those cattle from pressure and release. So if you put pressure on the cattle and they start moving away from you, then you don't need to be there. You can, you can back off them while they're traveling. And if you can still see them while they're traveling, you can be over getting some other cattle started and when they get going and if the other ones that you just started stop, well, you might go and give them another little bump along but it's it's just pressure and lease so when everything is traveling well 
decent step back and relax. So when you do, you know, see them in between trees, is that then you have, I don't know, like you have a bolter that runs off that you're trying to get back or it's, do they, do they get used to the noise and start to ignore you? How do you, what are some of the little quirks like that? They do. And it's generally the spears. Um, if, if they've been must, uh, missed a couple of times and you don't know why they've been missed, but um, you can tell when they, the professionals, you can tell the professionals escapees because they'll be hiding under trees and in the river and running back. They might run ahead really quickly and they're the ones you've got to watch because they either know a good hiding place or they're going to come back twice as fast. So those ones, they've generally been missed for a reason and it's satisfying when you when you get them in, but you've got to pull a few tricks to, to get them. The most important thing, I suppose, would be being vigilant and checking under every tree because they're, they're pretty good at hiding and they just they won't move. And that's a trick to seeing cattle. It's a lot easier to see them when they're when they're moving, you pick them up a lot easier. When they're standing dead still, um, they're hard to see. And then quite often, if one of those is a professional at hiding and he's got a few friends who don't really know the game, but they'll learn very quickly off, off them. So you want to you want to make sure you try and get them all every time. They, they teach each other pretty quickly. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so you, I guess you, you get a bit of experience, then you moved on and you were doing more of a, a, well, you took on more responsibility then. So yeah, you can talk about the next job then at, uh, I'm just, again, looking at LinkedIn here. It's got uh, Lone Eagle Aviation where you're looking after a, a fleet. Yeah. So Lone Eagle, uh, Lance Connolly bought Lone Eagle from Lindsay Ward. I worked for Lindsay for two years, I think, and Lance bought the company and, uh, he started doing some charter and, and got a 44 and eventually a, a long ranger on. And I took on the operations manager role, which is basically answering the phone and doing the bookings. But uh, it was pretty it was good. Uh, Lance was great trusting me in doing it. it was a, I was out of my depth quite a lot of the time, so it was a good learning curve throughout the year that, that I did that um, answering and just getting and managing people and I wasn't particularly good at that kind of I knew the logistics of where everyone was meant to be and how they're meant to be there but you've got a whole lot of other factors and you've got eight pilots that are, they've all got their own personalities to contend with and myself included <laughs> that, that was all helicopters? Yeah, that was all. They had two spray planes that Lance was running, running the spray plane, uh, and he had another guy working there. So it, it was just the helicopter side, but uh, the, the planes were busy in their own right in Tananara. Yeah, mostly mostly mustering, but we were sort of branching out into into charter and trying to build that as well. So those operations then you were looking after, like would you send? aircraft away for like two weeks and they go mustering on a, on a long trip and then come back or is it all sort of local properties that you'd be away for the day what were the sort of you know projects or the or the sort of tempo that you worked to it's probably anywhere up to about 200 miles 200 to 250 miles it was generally most of our work 99 percent of our work was within that there was a few jobs there to be 400 mile ferries but if you, I don't know, a typical week 
there is no typical week for a must-sing pilot, but you send someone, you get a phone call that I want on a station 100 miles away, says I want three machines tomorrow and two the next day. So you send those guys there and then someone else will ring up and say, I want two here. And then you just sort of follow the, the bookings on and try and minimise the ferry so one guy can go from from one station to the other to the other and, and they'll just keep bouncing along like that while the work's in front of them. Um, so would they be home every got, night or do you take, you know, you pack a swag and a, and a you know, backpack and yeah, put it in pack, the seat and take it? If, you, if you're working close to town, um, but Lindsay, he was big on never leave home without your swag because as soon as you do, you'll get caught out. And nowadays, you don't camp out as much as you used to, even the stock camps. Um, the crews that were working the cattle, they used to camp out a lot more uh, than they do now, but you'll still be at the station. So you'll be away from home a lot. Um, and while you're busy, but you kind of, a lot of mustering is the pilots get paid hourly rates. So you want to be, you want to be out um, working as much as you can uh, because it's a season. So the mustering season is typically say March, April to November. So you've got the quiet months, which is the wet season when it's raining, hot, hot and raining. It's not conducive to mustering cattle. So you hook in as much as you can during the busy part of the year. <laughs> I think they'd go to the beach, put their feet up. <laughs> no, there's, there's, I, I know a few that once you start getting a bit more experience, there's, there's a few that go and do the fires. Um, a lot of them are from, or it seems to be a lot of people are from properties, so they'll go back and help mum and dad, or, or people just go to the beach and take some time off going, do something not helicopter related, but it's a pretty good avenue. Is it? Is there enough money in it that, that if you were busy during the, that that season, could you take the rest of the year off? Like, is there enough money in it to do that? Yeah, yeah. I used to do that quite a lot and go overseas and do silly adventures whenever I could. Yeah, it's good. It's a it's a good lifestyle. You don't have uh, apart from you're away a lot if you can get used to that idea which for a lot of people for me I loved it and that was fine and you don't have any outgoings because you're not paying any rent you're staying at all the cattle stations you get fed everywhere you go so you say everything you make you're saving it's no outgoings at all and, and then you get all this time to go and do what you want over the wet season so I, yeah I thought it's a great lifestyle for a young person would you always fly the company machines or do people like, you know, you bring your own helicopter and it's you and the helicopter that you sort of contract out? How do you work it for yourself? Companies. But there's quite a lot of guys that have, that do mustering for, I don't know, that have got 3,000 plus hours and you can come back to it. I think that's about the magic number to be able to come back to it as a contractor and jump in, say, when it's busiest, March, April, or say, April, May, June, so you can come back for three months and hook in and do some contracting and then go back to back to the farm or whatever you were doing before. It's sort of, yeah, I guess, I'm just trying to think of how to word this, but... Well, you think you that need it. it's a, 
well, it's a catch twenty two. It's a, everyone wants everyone wants experienced pilots, but um, you've got to get. It. I suppose it's that's like that's the whole industry to start with. So if you're starting out on your own and you get an AOC and a helicopter, um, it's a lot easier to get the work if you've had some experience before, and it's a lot easier to get that experience with a bigger company because you can get absorbed into the into the roster of experienced pilots and they'll send you out to do a paddock with a guy who's got 6,000 hours and you're the junior pilot, but he's supervising you and you can learn a lot from him. And then when you start getting a bit more experience and you start getting better, you might do a few easy paddocks by yourself and then so on and so forth. And then eventually, I reckon when you've got to, when you've got a couple of thousand hours, like 3,000 hours for me, is I guess the magic number, you felt confident going wherever you went. You still do battle with some paddocks, but you felt confident that you were going to put up a reasonable show and do a good job for the client. What's that coaching look like when you're airborne? So say you are, you know, 500,000 hours and you're flying with someone in the yellow machine who's got 6,000 hours, whatever they've got. What's that coaching look like and sound like over the radio as you're actually doing the paddock? It's pretty casual. Radio would be on a channel, just a, a mastering channel, whatever we pick for the day, and it's pretty casual. And it might be, oh, do you need a hand over there? You get a bit behind, or can't help you. Or if you take the cattle up to this bore, um, this waterhole, they'll they go better because I've done this paddock before. They go better if you take them there rather than taking them over to the other one. It's that sort of stuff. It, it's subtle and it's friendly and it. In the heat of the moment, it's in, you can get in trouble if you do the wrong thing repeatedly. But yeah, for the most part, it's just it's mentoring more than anything. In terms of dedicated training, like outside of you know flight reviews every two years, would you go up with anyone and practice emergencies? Like, and, and just forget about the mastering side, just the, the flying skill part of it. Was there kind of any training done on that, like a, in a structured way? Yeah, it was. Everyone I worked for always got someone in externally to, to put everyone through, always at the start of the year. Um, and some of them do it midway through the season as well, but always at the start of the year you get um, the flying instructor in and, and they go through again and do just, it's like a mini flight review, I guess. And not so much to see how you're mustering the cattle, it's more to make sure that you're safe and, and, and safe in the helicopter. And, low level just a little brush up teach you a few things everyone I work for do better than you okay you spoke about some of the bigger bigger companies uh, which is probably a good segue there to, to talk about Helimaster what was your introduction there and, and how big was the, the company um, when you were working with them yeah I think I first flew for Helimaster in 2014 and I was in our spring, so I was back at Natalie on the station and um, doing a bit of work at home on the ground. And um, Nick said, well, do you want a machine down around Alice? Because they're, Hellymaster's got a, they're at Victoria River Downs, which is sort of in the middle of the Northern Territory, I suppose. It's in about three hours from Catherine. And they've got a far reach, but it is a long way down to Alice Springs for them. Um, it's hard to get once you get if you get too far spread as a mustering company and you break down or I mean it just it, 
logistically difficult. But they had a spare machine, so I took that down to Alice and did a little bit of work uh, around there. And then when they'd get busy, I'd VRD, I'd fly up and, and give them a hand. And so it was, quite, it was quite good. I did that for two years. And then I went overseas for a while, and I've been back to VRD um, a fair bit since, and yeah, they did a great show. Yeah, it's one of the old, I think it is the original, 1970, no, it was the biggest helicopter company. John Waymark started it, and it was in the, it's been going since the 70s, and, and I don't know how many hours they've done and how much country they've covered, but it's, it's a lot. Do you remember how many helicopters were there at the time? I think they had 17 Robinson, so there was probably 14 pilots. I might be exaggerating. It would be close to that. They had an aeroplane, uh, a 206, maybe two, and 44. All so back in the day, it all used to be 47. And John Waymouth was colorblind, and the engineers painted his helicopter pink. So <laughs> <laughs> I remember that one. I only heard, yeah. heard snippers because, yeah, Victoria River Downs, but as you said, everyone knows it as VRD. He seems to be like an icon, uh, along with Helly Buster, in, in that industry. Uh, you know, I've never travelled or, or worked in that part, but when people come in and, and for flight reviews or things like that, it's, you know, people, it's, it's an icon. It's uh, been around for a long time and also had a, had a big helicopter um, history there. Yeah, and they, they used to call it the big run, and it was, oh, I, I'm trying to think again, but it was 12 million acres or thereabouts. It was huge. It, it's been split up into smaller properties since then, but, um, it, yeah, it still remains, and it's, it's, I guess where Helicopter Mustering is going to be the home of it, you'd, you'd almost say. Yeah, I tried to, to cheat quickly before you jumped on. So I've got the Wikipedia page up, but I hadn't had a chance to compare it with, you know, US states or things like that in terms of how big it is. But, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, some of the figures here used to be um, 41,000 square kilometres. It's a bit smaller now, or uh, it's close to, to 16,000 square miles. Um, so maybe in the in the outro for this, I'll, I'll quickly compare it with... Uh, countries that, that people might know but yeah essentially yeah, yeah. these these stations out there are as big as countries yeah and they've got huge big rivers running through them and and Alice Springs where I started was the it doesn't rain as much because it's effectively the desert so if you control the water you control the cattle so if, you, if you're pumping the water into the trough and the cattle are going to come there you can catch a fair few of them by doing that but up there, big rivers, water everywhere, water holes, swamps, crocodiles, the whole the whole work is um yeah, so that's fun too, I think. Well before we leave the, the mustering side of things, there if you look at the accident rates and I'm sure CASA and ADSB would, would love to carve out the you know, those accidents out of their figures, but it's you know, it, it's a reasonably high accident rate in that mustering fleet. Have you you know, have you had any experiences yourself, or is it something like like it's just everyone knows someone who's had a uh, an accident type thing? Like how when, when you're talking to other people, is it coming up frequently that someone's written the helicopter off? Uh, what's it sort of like? I think, well, every it's a small industry, so everyone knows everyone. But since I've been flying, it's gotten a lot better. 
I think. I think it's more probably maybe more training, but maybe a bit less pilot fatigue. I reckon back in the day, that they probably just leave daylight till dark and kept on going like that throughout the whole season. And now it's it's a bit stricter. Um, the I think a lot of the accidents for the for the amount of hours that get flown. When you look at it like that, the accidents per hour aren't as high, um, and then a lot of the accidents is junior pilots that haven't had the training as well. So I think that's something that's probably why it's gone. The accident rate's gone down, but um, yeah, it's it is a dangerous job, and I I wrecked a helicopter. Uh, I had four hundred, and they say you're dangerous. You're most dangerous when you've got five hundred to fifteen hundred hours because it's when you're confident you get your ambitions and your capabilities and stuff and I think I had 499 hours and I got out to fix a fence and we used to have these collective locks which were made of leather and they're now um, they're now bungee cords so they, they can't come off but I've gone in and grabbed a pair of pliers or something and knocked the cord off or, or knocked the leather off or didn't put it on properly and I was fixing the fence and helicopter took off and smashed it off to pieces so I guess that I wasn't in it but still counts on the tally sheet um, was that a long stupid stuff like was that a long day to get <laughs> home <laughs> yeah it was a more nervous couple of days to get back to my boss hoping that he wasn't going to kill me um, yeah. he was he was good about it he said well I think you'll never do that again and um and it was a good learning experience for other people as well because you just get complacent and you shouldn't. We're allowed to get out of the helicopters to fuel up and just say, well, that's it, really. Um, I probably shouldn't have been fixing a fence, but the, the moral of the story is you check twice before you do something. Think uh, something over twice and don't get complacent. And it's, 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 you can learn something from everyone's mistakes and you be better for it. You brought up a good point, and again, I have to go look it up. But the the mustering hours as a percentage of all helicopter hours flown in Australia is a is a massive amount. Um, you know, when you're in the eastern seaboard or in the cities, you kind of just don't get it. You don't draw your attention to it. Yeah, don't get the appreciation of how many helicopters are flying. We're legally allowed to do fourteen hundred hours a year if you've had forty two consecutive days off, which is a month at the beach over the wet season. I can't remember exactly, but Lone Eagle was doing 8,000 hours a year with eight pilots, so it's a lot. Yeah, everyone too. Yeah, you, you're up. Some guys are doing the 1,200, and the younger guys are doing the five, six, seven. But that's when you just come out of a license and you do that many hours. It's quite a lot. That's racking up the hours because normally you think of you know people who've been in Vietnam, you know, they were getting like a thousand hours in a year doing combat missions. You know, almost every day. So for yeah, you guys are racking up close to a thousand hours a, a year. That's that's a, that's some decent flying. If you're especially if you're straight out of training, that's some that's some quick experience. Yeah, and that's on the on the I guess the helicopter owners is to not put the the guys without that much experience and use helping them ease into their career the right way. That's I think. It, Long, it goes a long way to 
a pilot's longevity and they don't get burnt out straight away. And the guys have been doing it for a while. It's yeah, you're not you're not that you can handle it, I suppose, doing the doing the big days. All right, well, let's um, I guess start to, to circle around then. So. Heli Spirit and True North were the other two companies that you did a, a bit of work for uh, moving on. Which one, and I guess I should know, which one has the, the tour boats that go up along the, <clears throat> the northern coast? Uh, well, it used to be True North had had the two. Well, it wasn't it was the True North. The True North is a boat that goes around the Kimberley coast and um, they had helicopter on there. And out of that, True North helicopters, came about and they sort of got more into the fires down in New South Wales. And I think the, the guy that owned the boat and the helicopters sold the, um, sold the boat to the, to the captain and sold True North helicopters to Jim Ryan, who I worked for. But before Jim sort of got tied in with Heli Spirit used to be Heli Work, which is Kerry Slingsby and Jim worked for him in 1993 I think so he still he had a pretty good relationship up there and I ended up flying for Heli Spirit I did a uh, season for them at the Mitchell Plateau and so they had five um five well generally five helicopters they're all 206 they're all longs and jetties at the Mitchell Plateau that's so more tourism tourism scene yeah that was that was all tourism. Well, I did a bit of burning for the uh, the Aboriginal Corporation lighting, fire lighting and, and doing stuff for them, but mostly tourism work. So they send five helicopters up there and you fly people off the boat. So the, the, the cruise boats will come past and you go out. Some of them you'd land on the back of the ship and pick people up or, or they'd ferry them into the beach, pick them up to the beach, uh, take them to the top of the falls and they do a walk around the falls and you go back at the next group and come back, pick that group up. And sort of just doing hot laps like that um, all day, but you, you rack up a lot of hours doing that. And then um, the other stuff, people would walk, would drive to the Mitchell Plateau and buses and uh, four wheel drives, and they do this awesome walk up to the top of the falls, and then you, and they get a helicopter flight over the falls back. So that this, was, this is that a was horizontal falls, there, is yeah. that right? Uh, no, the Mitchell Falls. Mitchell, Mitchell falls. falls. Okay, Mitchell. I have to, yeah, yeah. I have to look it up. I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, it's about 200 miles north of the horizontal falls, but pretty spectacular, untouched, completely untouched part of the country. So, and, did and you operate so off the off the small boat then, the one with the like the the original, um, the original one? With the no, okay. No, I ended up so I did a season for Heli Spirit, um, and then Jim was looking for someone to to come in and fly the long ranger for the fire season. So I went from Heli Spirit to True North helicopters and then they still so True North got a long range and a 407 and a twin which is on contract but the 407 comes back up to the Kimber and those uh, time at the Berkeley River Lodge and um, which is a lodge on the on the Kimberley coast and it's another spectacular spot so that's kind of the off season for the True North pilots who's heading up there. I was going to say, yeah, you must have you've covered a, a lot of territory then. <laughs> like those areas you're flying in aren't small areas. They're, they're massive areas, especially the Kimberley areas up there. If, you know, people listening overseas, I'll tell you what, you know, if I had the, the finance for it, that that boat trip, I don't know if it goes out of Darwin or not when you jump on, but 
uh, finding the yeah, coastline generally, up there would be amazing, especially the helicopter on board. Yeah, it's completely untouched. It's just you don't see a building or a person, and there's wild rivers and waterfalls and great fishing. It's just I don't even want to tell people about it. It's pretty good. <laughs> what would you carry with you? Would you you always have a rifle with you? Um, in mustering, quite often carry a rifle, but the, we used to have the carriage and discharge stuff. So sometimes you'd see sick livestock or that sort of stuff, but I guess it's not really, we're well, never really that. I was thinking I more about remote, crocodiles. But you'd never, yeah, but you're not, you're not swimming with the crocodiles. And I was just thinking, you're never that remote that you're going to have to go and survive in the bush for a week on your own. So it's, yeah, it's a, I'd like to romanticize it, but it's not that. Crocodiles and stuff, you just don't go in the water in those places. If there's a waterfall, a crocodile can't get up the waterfall, so you go swimming at the top, but not down the bottom. There's some fantastic photos that occasionally come through of a you know, helicopter land and it had one of those uh, little water holes um, on the rocks there. So, yeah, it must be, I don't know, the opportunity to, to, to stop and, and land in one of those remote spots and, and go for a swim. It's sort of, you can tick the box there that you, you live in the uh, live in the life if you're doing that. That was the beauty of mustering compared to, if you say, the fires or the tourism stuff is, that freedom when you're ferrying to to your next job, you finished mustering the paddock at lunchtime, and you've just got to get to the next station that night. So you, you fly along, and we'd all carry fishing rods under the seat, and you go and find a good creek and catch a fish or go for a swim. Or you just had a lot of freedom. See some original rock art. We had so much freedom like that, and. But you don't get that as much when you've got the commercial pressure of the bigger helicopters. Getting around, you know, I, I guess it's a lot of it's go to on, on the GPS. Um, but what sort of maps do you have with you? I, I did one flight, um, well, I did a couple of flights at Darwin, but one time I remember, I think we went through Tennant Creek. But in between Mount Isa and Tennant Creek, there was a, a spot on the whack, and I just remember there was this, it was just empty. There was like there was, there was physically nothing in that section on the map for, for a long time. <laughs> So there was nothing now of you pointed in the right direction and, and went. Um, yeah, are you carrying smaller scale maps of a property when you're working on a property or you just have a, a whack there as just general guidance if you need a look at it? Yeah, they always give you, well, you generally get um, or try and get the property map. So that'll have the paddocks and um, names of water, waters and stuff on them. Nowadays, it's getting... A lot of it is on Avenger maps, so you can get quite a lot of them that are moving maps. But early on, I just carried, that was before I was unraised, I carried a WAC and then I got a GPS, which just put a point and go to, I suppose. But um, they still weren't that reliable, so I always had the WAC. And now with Oz Unraised now, it's too, uh, it, we rely on that probably more than we should. But yeah, he, he, Get Oz runways to get to the station and then get a station map and work out the bores and things like that. But starting off, it's better to start the, the less that you start with, the less you rely on it. Because uh, otherwise you tend to get caught out when you're relying on the phone or the Oz runways to, to work and it, it doesn't and you then didn't realize how you got to where you got to. So I'd encourage everyone to 
stick to the hard paper and then use the other stuff to make your life easier. Is there any other myths about mustering that you sort of see come up in, in conversations online or in newspapers or things like that that just aren't true or that you want to kind of correct for the record? Oh, I don't want to go too, down too many rabbit holes. No, it, it's, I think mustering gets us, everyone sees the 10% that, well, it's not even 10%. It, it's like if you put a camera on someone riding a motorbike, they end up trying to do a wheelie. I think that's a bit of the reputation that mustering gets is when it, when you do get close to the yards and sometimes the, the cattle aren't going the right way and the helicopter, you, you move it, you throw it around or however you'd like to call it. But I think mustering gets an unfair rap because the majority of it's not like that. And, and when someone gets a camera on them, they, they tend to show off. So I think as a general rule, it's, it's not as um, it's not as cowboy as everyone as cavalry as, as everyone would think, uh, and any anyone that's sat in a helicopter for a thousand hours in a year would tell you that there's no way you can keep that up for a thousand hours. You, you just you know, you'd, you'd be in a tree or in the dirt or mostly backwards and forwards working your country. So I guess that's it. That's all I'd like to say. Um, yeah, it's probably uh, pretty reassuring for the people back in Robinson, <laughs> US, because I can imagine, yeah, yeah, hear stories of Frank designing this thing as a, uh, you know, a nice A to B um, private machine uh, type thing, and then to see some of the things that it can do uh, when it's out mustering, it's. <laughs> I, I don't think, I, yeah, I don't think Frank envisioned that, and I don't think he envisioned the Kiwis pulling off half a ton of deer from the mountains either so um yeah. it's amazing that, you know these machines well, obviously they, they don't always put up with it but uh yeah it's uh anyway they're a very versatile machine they are he's built them well sam look that's awesome it's just great to yeah dive in and get a little bit of a taste of the, the different lifestyles that are out there and, and some of the different roles uh, so so mate thank you very much for, for giving us a quick run through of you know some of the things you've got up to and uh, just a, a little insight into a, a different type of thing there with the mustering. Yeah, great. Thanks, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I hope I hope a few people get something out of it, or anyone starting out on their career, will give it a go. It's a good, it's a good career to go down. I think. That was Sam Chisholm sharing some of his experiences with us all. Sam is also a bit of a, a quiet achiever when it comes to photography. He sent through some spectacular photos for the blog post if you want to jump on to rotarywingshow.com to take a look. There are a couple of videos there too that I've loaded up on the page if you want to see more about what is involved in, in the mustering. The first one comes from Graham Gillies' YouTube channel. Graham is a, a bit of a legend himself in the mustering world. In this video, I've picked especially because it shows off some of the terrain at Victoria River Downs Station, which we talked about in the, in the interview. There's also a short doco video from Flight Safety Australia that touches on some of the things that Sam spoke about in terms of the mustering aviation community moving towards a, a greater safety focus. And the last one that I link out to is a webinar that I recorded way back in, in 2014 with David Creed before this podcast was even started. 
David was working as an instructor with me. And like Sam, Dave talks through his experience in mustering and goes through some of his photos. And there's a link there, and that's up on, on YouTube. So there's plenty there to have a look at if you want to see a bit more about the, the mustering and if you're close to an, or in front of a computer. During the interview, I mentioned that I had to do some research on Victoria River Downs in terms of how big it was and, and, and is now and give a, a comparison. So VRD, as it's normally referred to, the size of it, when it was at its largest, is basically the same size as the Netherlands or Switzerland, so an entire country size there. And even now, it's, uh, it's much smaller, but it's still roughly the same size as Puerto Rico or Cyprus, if that just gives people an idea of the, the land coverage of, of these stations. If you have any feedback on the show and want to reach me, you can fire off an email at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. Wherever you are hanging out when you listen to this, I wish you all the best until we catch up in the next one. And thanks for taking the time out to learn more about the, the world of helicopters. Special mention to those helicopter sky gods and incredibly good-looking legends that are supporters of the show on Patreon.com that are throwing in some dollars each episode. Your support makes this all possible and covers the ones and zeros downloading to everyone's devices. If you want to help out too, please take a look at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. Our honour roll this week includes Matt, David, Max, Jim, Mark, Ian, Hal, Stephen, Ali Dar, Ben, Jeff, Mike, Bill, Jason, Brent, Michael, AJ, Mark, Shannon, Kirillin, Eric, Jake, Chris, Gareth, John, Heath, Kevin, Tony, Peter, Jason, Michael, and Rendell.